And uh, as we consider God's Word in light of uh, that wonderful encouragement from Taylor, and it's exciting to hear what God is doing in her life and through her life. And so uh, we consider this morning from Titus what, uh, what God did to bring people like Taylor to that point and what he's done in our life through salvation. So I'm encouraged by these verses, wonderful passage on the manifold blessings of our salvation. We'll begin uh, this morning in verse 3, Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. If you want to use the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 998, 998. Hear now the word of God. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Our Father, we're thankful for your word that we now can consider and ask your kindness to us in letting us hear from you. You speak to us through it. Indeed, I pray for the believers in this room that our hearts would rejoice in the manifold blessings in which we have received in our salvation. We pray for others that they would come to know those blessings too. And so we're thankful for people like our sister Taylor who want to devote their lives full time to the gospel ministry. We pray that you would continue to lead and guide her and continue to use her. For the glory of King Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll excuse me if I share with you, uh, to begin this morning, a familiar parable. I call it a parable, though I've read it in a book. Uh, Of course, I read it in a book, so it must be true, right? Um, uh, The author actually says this is a true story. I tried to verify it, and I was unable to do so. And sometimes preachers, you may not believe this, but um, sometimes we exaggerate, and so... Um, You may have heard this story, but I think it's helpful for us in the context of the passage we'll consider. It's a story of a wealthy man with a vast estate, including a household staff of gardeners and butlers and cooks and all the rest. Uh, A man who uh, enjoyed spending his wealth in purchasing rare and expensive paintings. Well, despite uh, his material fortune, uh, his life soon uh, grew hard as his wife died in childbirth at the birth of their only child, a son. The son grew to be the apple of this man's eye, his only family, and yet tragically his son died in an accident at age 17, breaking this man's heart. In an attempt to console himself, this man who loved paintings had a had a a portrait made of his son. He hung it over the mantle and spent his evenings 
by the fire there, simply remembering his son and the days they had together. In fact, when visitors would come over, and many would come to want to tour his estate, and he would begin, first of all, with the portrait of his son, before he would move on to the paintings by all the masters. Well, the portrait of his son was no substitute, of course, for having his son in his life. And this man would die a year later, leaving no heir at all. That meant his entire estate would be auctioned. On the day of the auction, hundreds arrived to purchase rare paintings and hand-carved furniture and silver table settings and imported rugs and all the rest. The crowd was seated and the auctioneer, auctioneer took his place there at the landing on the long sweeping stairway. The first item for bid was the simple portrait of the man's son that hung over the mantel. The auctioneer pounded the gavel, saying, we will start the auction with bidding on this portrait. Who will make a bid for this painting? There was silence. Finally, a voice called out and said, we want to see the rare paintings. Skip this one. And yet the auctioneer persisted, saying, will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding at 100, 200? Another shouted angrily, no one wants it. We came to buy the valuable things. Let's get on with it. The auctioneer continued, the portrait of the son. Who will bid for the son? Well, then a voice finally came from the back of the room. Excuse me, a man said. Happened to be the family gardener. There, serving the man for 25 years, he had entered the room unnoticed and stopped by to listen. He's a middle-aged man with sons of his own and certainly grieved when his master lost his only son. And so he couldn't imagine this portrait being belittled that meant so much to him. At worst, discarded, just thrown away. So he said in front of all these wealthy people, I can can bid for it, but I don't have any money. A woman said, let him have it for free. None of us want it anyway. The auctioneer said, if no one bids for it, then your desire alone will be payment enough. The man yelled out, just give it to him and move on as the crowd grew restless. Auctioneer pounded his gavel, going once, going twice, gone to the gardener. He then laid down his gavel and said to the disbelief of the crowd, the auction is now closed. He stepped away from the podium and an attorney approached. He quieted the angry crowd and read the man's will, which instructed that only the painting of the son would be auctioned and that whoever bought the painting would inherit the entire estate. The lawyer read the wishes of the father in the will, quote, whoever chooses the son receives everything. As I said, it's a, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Uh, so wonderful, uh, I'm skeptical if it's true. But of course it is true in some way. When you look in verse 7 of Titus chapter 3, we're The Lord says through his word that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. You know, the world is constantly telling us, let's get on with the important stuff. Let's move on. Let's let's make more. Let's play more. Let's get more. Let's go. There's important things to do, right? And let let us do the valuable thing. Meanwhile, it's the gardeners of the world, it's the foolish, it's the unimportant, it's the outsiders that just slip in and say, I have nothing but my desire, 
may I have the Son. To that person, Paul announces, I think, simply astonishing news. And don't let the familiarity of it cause it to lose its impact upon your life. Not only do you get the Son, you become an heir. An heir to the hope of eternal life. That's what it means to be saved. See, we're not simply saved from something. We're saved to something. We've been working our way here uh, in Titus 3 through one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. 71 words. I, I think Paul had something against periods. right? And, and, and here we are just kind of laboring our way. And yet it's, it's one of the beautiful, glorious explanation of what it means to be saved. And, and Paul uh, explains to us that salvation includes many different comprehensive gifts. In particular, what Paul's wanted us to focus on is the transforming effects of salvation. So not so much the objective reality of salvation, what Christ has done for us, but how has salvation impacted you? If you are saved, a radical spiritual transformation has taken place. I want to explore that with you today. But before we do, I want to remind you of our need. You see that there in verse 3, don't you? And we, I know we looked at this verse last week, but I think it's very important for us to remember. And Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And as we said last time, that's quite a diagnosis. It's certainly not what we're used to hearing described about ourselves. I mean, when is the last time you heard a coworker walk up to, to another and say, you know, you know, Lenny, the reason you are the way you are is because you're foolish and you're disobedient and everyone hates you. I just thought I'd let you know, right? We don't, we don't talk like this. We don't, we, don't, uh, we don't use these types of descriptions. We don't say to people, you know, you're enslaved. Uh, you, you know you're trapped by your own pleasure. It's only the Bible tells us things like this. And I think it's only the Holy Spirit that will convince us of it. I mean, I imagine some of you here read verse 3 today and, and you think, well, <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you lot, but that doesn't describe me. I'm not foolish and disobedient and full of malice and envy and all the rest. Right? I, I, I don't believe it. That doesn't describe me at all. Right? And, and I understand that tendency. We all have a tendency. I think it's a natural tendency to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves. This is why we almost immediately, whenever there's an accusation against us, leap to our own defense rather than listening intently to see the truth in it. We're always jumping to our own defense. How dare you say that about me, right? And we're, we're committed to, to protecting ourselves. It started all the way back in Eden, right? It's, as we explored in Sunday school this morning, it's her fault. It's her fault. The snake tricked me, Right? And we, we, we reject the Bible's diagnosis of us, and yet some of us here, we read verse 3, and we say, yeah, yeah, that's me. Uh, that, that describes me to a T. Why do you believe that? How have you come to agree that verse 3, foolish, disobedient, and all the rest is a description of you? I would suggest the reason you believe it is because the Holy Spirit is giving you a heart to believe. Or to use the language of Paul here, verse 5, you've been regenerated. Regenerated. And the first thing that I would like to explore with you this morning as we uh, flesh out, really, the many ways in which we experience salvation, we see we experience salvation as a regeneration. Regeneration. Look at verse 5. 
He saved us, he says, which is really kind of the heart of this one sentence. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Those are verses we looked at last time. But read on. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that we have been regenerated. That is, that there has been a radical, spiritual, supernatural, internal transformation that has taken place in us. A regeneration. Usually this is described as being born again. Or a new birth. Or a new creation. Or being raised from the dead. I think we even sang of it this morning, didn't we? Um, uh, what is it, Don? Born to give us, died to give us second birth, right? It's even in our songs we're talking about, that's the idea of regeneration. That's very helpful for us because our problem is not that we have bad habits and we need, need to reform ourselves. No, we were dead in sin. And we need to be reborn. We need to be raised again. It's not that we need to turn over a new leaf. We need a new life. We need to become a new person, And we have in Christ, you see that, we've been regenerated. The old is gone, the new has come, and he has put within us new loves and new desires and new hearts and new understandings of all reality. That's what God has done for you. It was William Thompson who likened our world to flies crawling across the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, blissfully unaware of the magnificence that surrounds them, oblivious to the majesty of our Lord. But you, Christian, you see it. Right? Some people talk about Jesus and nothing other than a swear word. To you, he's the, he, he's the joy of your life. You see it. You get it, right? You, you, have, you have a passion for God where there once was none. You have a hatred for sin where there once was none. You, 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 you have a love for other Christians where there once was none. You, you have a love for the Bible and want to seek after it where there once was none. How did this happen? Well, you have been regenerated. You've been born again. In fact, Paul describes it as a washing, doesn't he? You see that there in verse 5? By the washing of regeneration. We, after all, need a bath after verse 3, don't we? And let's get that filth off. And God is happy to do that for us and cleanses us from our past. He also describes it as a renewal. You see that as well there at the very end of verse 5. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he says, a washing of regeneration and renewal. So our past has been washed away, and now he's creating a, something new, right? A, a, a new person going forward. There's newness there. So after, a, a, after your regeneration, as one has said, you, you're still you after your new birth, but there are two changes. You are clean, and you are new. Clean and new. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, he tells us there, doesn't he? He doesn't leave us to guess. He says this all happened because of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In fact, read verse 6. Whom, that's the Holy Spirit, he, that's God the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You see the Trinity all there in verse 6, don't you? In fact, the Trinity is throughout this entire passage. We received the Holy Spirit. God poured him out upon us, right? And not just a bit, right? We've been lavished upon it. It's not like pouring a little cup of water upon it. You're standing under the waterfall of the Spirit of God as he constantly is rushing upon you. And Paul will tell us, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? You understand that, don't you, Christian? The Spirit of God lives within you. The Spirit of God has brought about a new birth, a transformation. The Spirit of God is bringing about a renewal in you. The Christian life is the spiritual life. It's a life 
done in the spirit. I've been told that the, when the Queen of England buys a piece of property for her own use, she puts her seal upon it. The royal seal goes on the building, and so that all will know that it belongs to the monarch. And then, once she buys it, there is typically an extensive renovation of the building in order to get it up to Her Majesty's standards. Well, I think that's quite a metaphor for what God has done for us. Has he not put his seal upon us in the spirit and now has begun this extensive renovation project through those who belong to him? He is regenerating us. He has washed us. He has renewed us just as it was promised. This is not something Paul made up. We've heard this time and again throughout the scriptures, perhaps most clearly in Ezekiel 36. Listen to what the prophet says in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your all your idols I will cleanse you well there's the washing verse 26 I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh well there's your regeneration verse 27 I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules my friends you see there's renewal so the promises made hundreds of years before Christ came through the prophet Ezekiel, they've come. They're here. God has regenerated those who are saved. Are you regenerated? Have you been born again? As Jesus would ask. Because a person is either born or they're not born, right? I mean, you're either born again or you're not born again. There was, there was a time in which you were not born, right? And then there was a time after that which you were born. You say, well, how... How do you know? How do you know when your children are born? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, right, they're, they're screaming, typically, and, and soon they're eating, right? And they're, they're crawling, of course. And not on, on the same day, right? I mean, but eventually that's going to happen. There's life there, isn't there? There's evidence. So what's the evidence that I've been born again? What's the evidence I've been regenerated? Well, I think we could probably talk a great deal about that, but let's just consider what he says down there in verse 8, which I find particularly important. He refers to those who believe in God. Those who believe in God. I would, I would say that belief in God is the first evidence of regeneration. If I were to ask you, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Jesus? Maybe you say, well, you know, I, I read the Bible and just find it very compelling. And, and uh, I'm convinced that he is who he says he is. And so I, I believe him. Or maybe you say, well, I listened to a preacher when I was a kid, and, and he, he laid out the gospel for me, and, and uh, it, it seemed to make sense, and, and so I, I put my faith in him. Or maybe you say, well, you know, I look around, I see all that God has done for me, and, 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 I, and I love him. I trust him. That's why I believe. I believe for these reasons. And, and you could, you, I mean, whatever your case is. In and, and my case, is, I, was, I was 17 years old, walked into a church, heard the gospel in a song, Lord, I lift your name in high. I never heard such a thing. I, and, and immediately my heart began to believe, almost despite myself. We all have different stories why we believe, and, and you have your story and I have my story. But, but may I suggest that behind all of our stories, as different as they might be, there's something going on called the regeneration, called the rebirth. That if you believe in Jesus, it is because the Spirit has opened your eyes to see him. He took out a heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh so that you would believe. 
And just as you didn't decide the first time that you'd be born, you don't decide on the second. It is the gracious and loving and powerful act of God in us by his spirit in which he changes us and gives us eyes to see the Lord and hearts to believe and rejoice in him. This is why faith is not a work. Sometimes we say we're saved by faith, right? Well, faith is not a work in which God gives you credit. Faith is simply the the cry of a drowning man, if you will. Right? His cry, a drowning man's cry, is not to his merit. The lifeguard does not listen and say, well, that's a pretty good cry. You know, I think I'll save him. Right? Or he doesn't say, well, you know, um, he's not crying quite well enough yet, is he? And so, well, we'll just let him linger out there. I'll just stay up here on my big chair and, and uh, we'll just let him cry. And once the cry gets to be, a, to be a little louder, then I'll come down and say, no, 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 no. You see, uh, he, he hears the cry, he responds. Faith is not a work done by a righteous man. It's a cry from a needy man who has been born again. Have you cried out to Jesus? Have you trusted in him? If you do, you will be justified. Second word we consider this morning is our justification. Look what he says there in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. Now, if you've been around in church for a little while, you've heard this term, justification, haven't you? Or justified, you probably know what it means. It's a legal term. It simply means to be declared righteous. The Bible is constantly using the metaphor to describe our relationship prior to salvation with God as that of a, a trial, a man before a judge. And the charges there are laid out for us, aren't they? They're very clear there in verse 3. Foolish and disobedient and enslaved and malicious and all the rest. And the charges are there and the evidence is overwhelming. But God, as Paul says there in verse 7, according to his grace in his son, he, he puts our guilt on Jesus. Jesus serves our sentence. That's what the cross is all about. He's dying on the cross for our sentence, to pay our penalty, to, to in, incur our debt upon himself. And as a result, because Jesus has taken our, our debt and given us his righteousness, as a result, we stand before God as innocent, as righteous, as justified. So you might think regeneration brings about a new person. Well, justification brings about a new status, new status, like it did in Bob Sheffield's life. Bob Sheffield was a missionary with navigators, but before he became a missionary, in fact, before he became a Christian, he was a professional hockey player. And Bob, uh, like many hockey players, I imagine, uh, didn't mind fighting, and uh, he didn't leave that instinct on the ice. He took it wherever he went, and so he was notorious for getting in fights, bar fights and fights in shopping malls and all the rest, wherever he was, Bob getting into fights, and therefore he spent a number of times in jail, had a criminal record. Well, Bob and his wife became Christians. They not only became Christians, they decided to go on staff with the Navigators Mission Organization, which the Navigators assigned him and Bob and his wife to the United States. He's a Canadian. Well, the government of the United States, because of his criminal record, would not give him a work visa, would not allow him to come and work in America. They tried every effort they could. They, They called everyone they knew talked to every lawyer they could, and there was no way around it. There was one chance left. It was a long shot. But Bob, being part, you know, Canadian, being part of the Commonwealth, if you will, applied for what's called a Queen's Pardon. A little bit later, he received notice in mail. It read like such. Whereas we have since been implored on behalf 
of the said Robert Sheffield to extend a pardon to him in respect to the convictions against him. And whereas the Solicitor General here submitted a report to us, now know ye therefore, having taken these things into consideration, that we are willing to extend the royal clemency on Robert Sheffield. We have pardoned, remitted, and released him of every penalty to which he is liable of in pursuance thereof. Right? And from that moment on, if you were to ask Bob Sheffield, hey, Bob, do you have a criminal record? He would answer honestly with integrity, no, I don't. He has been pardoned. His record has been expunged. And I'm telling you, Christian, you too have, have been pardoned, have you not? You have been declared righteous if you trust in Jesus. There's, you, uh, there is no record against you. Therefore, the Paul will, will say so boldly in Romans chapter 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. You're innocent because you have been justified. Now, friends, if your hope before God is in the work of Christ and not your own work, if you are basing your hope in your justification, what that means is that being a good person for the next five years or the next 50 years is not going to make you more acceptable to God. It's not going to make you more pardoned. right? You can't make yourself more pardoned. You either are pardoned or you aren't pardoned. You either are saved or you aren't saved. It's all based in the work of Jesus. So are you justified? Have you been declared by God not guilty? If you are, then you will be glorified. Glorified. Or just to keep the the theme of the sermon, if you will, we consider thirdly, our destination, our destination. This is where I get pretty excited. You think I've been excited already, but no, wait, wait till you hear this. Look at verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So he's, he's telling us about our future now, isn't he? Heirs of the hope of eternal life. We're a new person, we've been regenerated. We have new status, we've been justified. And now we have a new destination. You see there, we'll be glorified. In fact, not just glorified, we're heirs. I mean, come on. You just, don't forget verse 3. That's why we started there. We were, we, we were as bad as could be. We were rebels. We were, we were totally depraved. And not only has, has this good and holy God departed us, and not only has he transformed us, he has now, if you will, he has adopted us into his family. Because after all, uh, an heir is a child. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then, what is it? Heirs. And and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Or Galatians 4, if you're not persuaded. You are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You see, you're you're an heir. You're just not a citizen of heaven, though you are, Philippians 3.20. You're a co-owner, right? It is yours. You have the legal right to it because you have been adopted into the family of God. And I think here we're getting to the purpose of salvation. Why in the world would God want me? What does he want to do with me and you? God wants children. God wants heirs. God wants us 
to love him as children to a father. He saved us so that he might give to us our inheritance. You say, well, what is that? <laughs> What's our inheritance? Well, it's everything God owns. Which is what? That's <laughs> everything. It's all. It's everything. In fact, this word regeneration that we see in verse 5 is, is a rare word in the Bible. We say there's many synonyms to that word, but the word regeneration is only used twice in the New Testament. And once here in Titus 3, 5. The other place is Matthew 19 and verse 28, in which Jesus is speaking here. And he says, truly I say to you, now listen to this, in the new world, but literally it's, it's in, in the regeneration, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So Jesus here, is, and when using the term regeneration, he's not referring to a new Christian, he's referring to a new world. That's why it translates in the new world, so you wouldn't even know that the word regeneration is there. This is the new beginning to all things. This is the rebirth of all creation. The prophets of old talked about it, the, the new heavens, they would say, and the new earth, and, and that they would say. And, and, and the, he plans to, to regenerate everything, right? And that's just not you. So we live with fallenness and sin in our own lives. Well, the world lives in a state of fallenness, too, and corruption. The world needs to be renewed just as much as you and I need to be renewed. And so the regeneration of all creation, it begins where? It begins in us, right? But that's just the beginning. The, 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 it's just the very first part of God's plan to take the, all of creation, including you, and regenerate it all. In other words, your new birth by the Holy Spirit is part of the entire renewal of everything. God has started his cosmic regeneration project in your heart and in your mind and in your will. That, 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 that we are the first glimpse of the new creation. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, we are the first fruits of what God plans to do. And what he's doing is he's making you fit for your inheritance. Right? Because can you imagine a beautiful world that's inhabited with people who are foolish and disobedient and malicious and all the rest, I mean, it would be a disaster. We'd ruin it once again. So he begins with us. He's going to complete his work in us when Jesus returns. This is why Paul there says in verse, what is it, verse 7, he talks about the hope that we have, the hope of eternal life. And one pastor puts it this way, there's going to be new heavens, new earth, new body, new perfected relationships, new sinless sight of all that is good and glorious, and new capacities for a kind of pleasure in God that will exceed all of your dreams. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. And that is, I think, is our longing. In fact, I mentioned this word regeneration is rare in the Bible, but it was not rare in the day in which the Bible is written. The Greek philosophers would often speak about a regeneration, that there was a quest, even those outside of the faith, for a renewal of the natural world. Now, we may not use that word today, but that desire is still in us. I mean, how, how many of us or how many of your neighbors are, are seeking for a healing to, to Mother Earth or whatever else they'll call this creation we're looking for something better than what we have and don't you want something better than what you have don't you long for something better wouldn't you like to live in a healthier world in a greener world a more righteous world and if you say no i'm, I'm pretty happy with the one we got well let me encourage you to go to eagle butte south dakota this summer with our missions team 
Or better yet, you could go to uh, Enswam, Ghana this February with our missions team. Or you don't have to go anywhere. Just uh, uh, become a foster parent. You want to see what's wrong with this world? Bring your family into that situation. And soon you will be longing for a better world. A world of peace, a world of justice, a world of environmental protection, a world in which diseases are ended, a world in which children are not dying from starvation every day. That's why, that's why we get so worked up around election time, don't we? Because these people who stand on the, on the platform, they promise to fix everything. They're going to fix it. We lo- every time, the, the, no one says, okay, we're just going to keep everything the same. Right? That's my plan. Vote for me, everything stays the same. Every single one, I don't care where they're coming from, vote for me, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And, and so we, we, we recognize, right, we get all worked up, we give our money and our time because we want it fixed. We want something better. We, we, need the, we, we, we want to make this place great again, right? Isn't that what we say? Okay? In, in fact, C.S. Lewis tapping into that would say, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, I find that extraordinary. If I have this desire that there is nothing here that can satisfy this desire, where does that desire come from? Why would I actually desire something that cannot be met? Lewis says the the most obvious, the most probable explanation is that I wasn't made for this world. I'm made for another world. I'm made for a better world. In fact, Tolkien and Lewis and all their buddies, they would get together and and, and they would engage in dialogue concerning mythology. Of course, Lewis was an expert in mythology and, and fairy stories and, and, and all the rest. And, and Tolkien would go on and write an essay on the nature of the fairy tale. He says, why do we create these things? Why is every culture in the world creating fairy tales? And why are these the stories that last? These are the stories that last for generations and centuries, and we keep passing them on and on. And Tolkien says, we do that because we have four longings that they all meet. Number one, we long for a supernatural realm, he says. Number two, we, love for a, we long for a love stronger than death. Love stronger than death. Don't you love, long for that? Number three, we long for good to triumph over evil. And number four, we long for a closer relationship with nature. Right? And I think that this is why we, lo- you know, some of you people are just crazy for Star Wars, right? right? You just love Star Wars. I mean, a little ridiculous to me, but I, I guess I get it, right? Or, or Lord of the Rings, right? Or it's why, and it's a movie I consider ridiculous, but it's uh, Avatar, right? Have you seen that movie? It's the largest grossing movie ever, $3 billion for a movie. Made three billion dollars. Why? Well, it's a fairy tale. There's just trees and gardens and elves in the new beautiful worlds, and we love them, right? Because we want them to be true. Don't you want them to be true? Alistair Begg would say, I like the idea of gnomes busy in my garden while I sleep. Right? <laughs> I don't know what they do. I don't know why I put gnomes in our garden. What do they do? Plant weeds? I don't know what they're out there doing. They're not certainly helping. Right? He said, I like the idea of talking beavers making tea. Right? Chubby hobbits smoking their pipes. We long for happily ever after. We long for a beautiful place. Don't you see that's the story of the Bible? Don't you see that's why we long for it? Don't you see the Bible, you get to the end. Have you got to the end? It's a pretty great ending. It's, it's happily ever after, is it? 
They lived happily ever after in a beautiful, wonderful place. It's a, I mean, you start the Bible. You don't even get the end. You start the Bible. What do you have? You have a beautiful garden. It's just luscious and gorgeous and harmony and perfection, and it gets all fouled up because of evil, and all of a sudden thorns and thistles are growing, and there's enemies, and there's conflict, and there's battle, and then we, we kind of just uh, do our best in this terrible place in which we now live, and then we get to someplace else in the Bible, and there's, and there's another one that's taken to be a garden, a gardener, right? They think he's a gardener, but of course he's not, or is he? Because everywhere he goes... This second Adam, the thorns and thistles and death, they vanish. Right? Wherever he goes. And relationships are restored. And people are healed. And others are loved. Right? We'll sing about it this year, won't we? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. My friends, you, are, you and I are created for a beautiful place where righteousness reigns. We long for the supernatural, don't we? Yes, we do. It's in all of our hearts. We long for love that's stronger than death. We long for good to triumph evil. We long for a closer relationship into the world in which we have made. And so Beg says, all the longings of the human heart are answered in the gospel. Perhaps you remember the song. I wasn't alive when it was written in the 60s, but I've heard it plenty of times. It's written by the band The Animals. We got to get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do. You know that chorus? I'd sing it for you, but then you'd leave. I got one more point, right? It's a, it's a, it was a war anthem. It became a war anthem, didn't it, for the soldiers in Vietnam. we got to get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do. I don't Maybe there's someone here who just says, yeah, I have got to get out of this mess. I have got to get out of this trouble. Why? Why do, why do they write that song? Why does that song resonate? Why? Uh, we got to get out of this place. It's the last thing we ever do. Well, he tells us. He says, girl, there's a better life for me and you. And I, I'm here to tell you it's true. <laughs> there is a better life. There is a happily ever after where it gets better and better and better day after day after day. And it's only found in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. We who are bound in sin and hatred, God reaches out, he renews us, he pardons us, he will bring us home, and in the meantime, he sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. You see that in verse 8? This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Good works. So you see, he has made us a new person. He, we have given new status. We have a new destination. And now lastly, he says, we are to have a new behavior, which is part of our salvation. This saying is trustworthy and true. He begins. It's reliable. Um, just by way of footnote, there are four other places in the pastoral epistles where Paul says this saying is trustworthy. The pastoral epistles, are, of course, the three letters written to pastors, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so there's good homework for you this week, isn't there? So look and find and discover and meditate on the four other places where Paul says this saying is trustworthy. Here he says, verse 8, this saying is trustworthy. You can count on it. 
what, 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 what can we count on? Well, what, what saying is he referring to? He's, everything he just told us, everything about salvation. He says you can count on it. You, you need to insist on these things. It's reliable. And the reason it's reliable is not based upon simply an internal subjective experience that we have that. It's based upon historical facts. There was a man who lived in this world named Jesus who, who died and rose again three days later. And he was appeared in front of 500 people and many others. And those who saw him testified over and over again, we have seen this man. He rose from the dead just as he said he was, and they're usually killed for that, and yet they never denied that to be true. I mean, it's trustworthy, Paul says. It's, 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 it's uh, not just trustworthy. He says there in the, verse, in the end of verse 8, it's excellent and profitable. Right? So, th- in other words, this changes us. These, this saying, this gospel, leads to what? Good works. To godliness, or if you will, truth leads to godliness, which is, you probably heard every sermon in Titus. That's the theme of Titus, isn't it? Truth, rightly understood, will lead to a change. It will lead to sanctification. That Christians are to be people of good works, right? Of course, we're not saved by good works. We see that up in verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but we're saved for good works. And so what, what we do is first, as I shared in Sunday school, first we behold him, and then we begin to behave. Right? You, don't, you don't behave first, and then, then you get to know him. No, you, you get to know him, and that will change you. That, that will win your affection and your delight. It will lead to a new life. It will lead to good works. This is important for us to hear. In fact, this is the fifth time, you know, that Paul has mentioned this phrase, good works, in Titus. He'll mention it once more in verse 14. I hope to consider that with you next week. So he keeps hitting this drum, good works, good works, good works. And the reason he is is not, is not because he, he wants to suggest that's uh, what we need to do to be saved, as we already established. But, but if we are saved, we will be doing good works. And I, I think the reason we need to be aware of this is that there is super, there's a superficial commitment to Jesus. There's masquerading Christianity. There is uh, hypocrisy, isn't there? And there are people... And I hope there's none here, but just in case there is, let me throw this out there. There are people who attend service every week, and even people who say, I believe in God, but it's made no difference in their life. It hasn't changed them. It hasn't transformed them. It's fake. Perhaps you heard the parable that once upon a time there was a shepherd boy tending his sheep in a country road, and a brand new SUV screeched to a halt next to him. The driver a man dressed in a suit with expensive shoes and wristwatch and sunglasses gets out of the SUV and he asks the shepherd boy, he says, if I can guess how many sheep you have, will you give me one? The shepherd boy looks at the man, and he looks him over and says, this guy has no idea about sheep. And he looks at his vast field covered in sheep. He says, yeah, all right, go ahead. Well, the man pulls out a computer out of his car and pulls up a NASA website and enters the GPS coordinates and opens the database and prints out a report on his little mini computer. And he looks at the report, he turns to the shepherd, and he says, you have 1,586 sheep. The shepherd is, is of course, amazed at this. He says, that's right. I mean, I can't believe it, but I I guess you you can have one of my sheep. So he takes the animal and puts it in the SUV, and and the shepherd gets to thinking. He says, well, wait a second. Before you leave... If I can guess your profession, will you pay me back? And the man says, sure. Go ahead and try. Well, the shepherd says, easy. You're a consultant. The man says, well, that's right. How do you know? And the shepherd says, simple. First, you came here without being called. Second, you charged me to tell me something I already knew. And third, you really don't understand anything about my business, and I'd really like my dog back. (laughs) 
Right? <laughs> you see, it's possible, isn't it, to look good and sound spiritual and fake your way through it. It's possible to say, yeah, I know all about this Christianity stuff. And yet you don't know anything about obedience. There's a difference between genuine faith and deceived faith. I think God would have us know it. Is that not why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not many who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. There are those who hear his words and those who hear his words and do them. He has come, as we saw in chapter 2, to redeem us from lawlessness, to set us on a path for good works, to sanctify us. He even says here in verse 8, doesn't he, that we are to devote ourselves to good works. So we have seen, if you're keeping track, we are to be zealous for good works. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, wasn't it, we are to be ready for good works. And now in chapter 3, verse 8, we are to be devoted to good works. You know people like that, I think, that are devoted to good works. People who are the, are the first ones to do what's asked of them, who are willing to take the dirty job even if no one else wants them, right? They're, they're devoted to this. Those people, I think Paul is saying, should be like Christians because of the gospel. I, I'm, I'm very, I find it very compelling what Ron Hattersley had to say. He's the former deputy of the uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party in the UK, who happens to be a socialist and a very vocal atheist. He writes about his experience of joining Christians from the Salvation Army one evening as they tried, as they cared, excuse me, for the homeless. Listen to what he says. The arguments against religion are well known and persuasive. Yet men and women who believe are the people most likely to take risks and make sacrifices involved in helping others. Good works, the Christian John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be, to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. He continues, the correlation is so clear that it is impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live the Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women like me, who cannot accept the mysteries and miracles, do not go out with the Salvation Army each night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that makes them morally superior to atheists like me. And to this atheist, I would say, amen. Amen. Devoted to good works, or as Paul has said elsewhere in this letter, live lives that adorn the gospel, that we show others what we have received in Jesus by how we act. My brothers and sisters in Christ, are you devoted to good works? Do you do good to others like Jesus has been good to you, and in doing so, commend the gospel. This has happened in the prison guard's life who said to his wife, perhaps, you know, we've got a couple of new prisoners who came to the jail. I've got to go down and process them. I should, I should be up for dinner. It shouldn't take too long at all, right? It should be pretty straightforward. These prisoners there in that Philippian jail, utterly oblivious to the radical transformation that would take place in his home that evening as he was about to encounter a couple men 
the likes of whom you have never met before, never seen anybody like these guys in his jail. I mean, after all, who are these, who are these prisoners who instead of cursing and spitting and instead of yelling and screaming in the middle of the night, instead of being hearts full of hatred and malice, instead are singing at the midnight hour? Who are, who are the prisoners who cry out to the living God in praise when their feet are fastened in stocks and their backs are still bleeding from the lacerations received by an unjudicial mob beating? I mean, he must have thought, this Philippian jailer, I've seen it all in my jail, at least I thought I have, but I never thought I would see this. As the song prevailed in the night, and then soon afterwards, what? The earth began to quake, and the doors flew open, and the chains fell on. And seeing that the prisoners would soon be free, he drew out his sword to do what he thought was the only resource available to him, to fall upon it and take his own life. After all, the prisoners are soon going to turn on him, and if not the prisoners, then the Roman authorities. Instead, comes kindness. Instead, comes grace. You think the man Paul might have thought, well, this is a disgusting man who occupies a land that is not his own and harms innocent people in order to fluff his own pillow. Right? So yeah, let's let him fall on his sword. He's a despicable man. He deserves it. But no. No. I mean, how could Paul say that? After all, he too was once a miserable wretch. He too was once foolish and disobedient, deceived, enslaved, full of malice and envy. Until the kindness of God, the love of Jesus shone into that darkness of his embittered heart, took out his heart of stone, gave him a heart of flesh, made him new until God saved him. And so he called out, don't harm yourself. Put your sword away. Because we're all here. Aren't we boys? Right? We're all here. None of us have left. Which raises, in light of the good works, this wonderful question. What must I do to be saved? So I want what you have. You have something I don't have. How can I get it? The answer, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Are you saved? And if so, has it transformed your life? as God intends. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that unfolds for us all the majesty of your work of salvation in us. May it fill us with hope and joy. May we be able to leave here with a skip in our step, no matter the situations in which we live, in light of all that you have done for us. May it put joy in our heart. And more than that, may it put a desire in us to be like Jesus. Not to earn your love, we've received it, and the love may transform us in that we want to be devoted to good like Jesus. Help us by your Spirit. 
and for our friend here who has not yet to believe in Christ, will you not, in your love and kindness to him, take out his heart of stone, give him a heart of flesh, so they may too see the majesty of the Lord and turn and call out to him that they may do what that Philippian jailer did long ago. Believe on Jesus and be saved. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.